Amen. Well, welcome everybody to New Spring at every campus all across the state. My name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here. I work a lot with our students and uh, it's just awesome, man. I love being a part of this church. I was thinking about this morning on the way in about how crazy it is to have to, you know, because everybody kind of starts off their message at New Spring with like, hey, I'm so-and-so. Welcome to New Spring. It's kind of like the company line or whatever. Because we actually do have people in 14 cities all over the state that are watching this. And there's a ton of new people all the time. And if you've been here like me for a long time, you just kind of can get in the habit and the rhythm of doing church. But it's amazing. I, you know, it's just, it's just really cool. So welcome, whatever city you're in, Charleston, Columbia, Florence, Greenwood, Aiken, Rock Hill, everywhere that we have people gathered together. Just welcome this morning. It's awesome. Thank you guys for, for being here. We're in week three of a series that we're doing called Teach Us to Pray, where we are basically looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the infamous Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lays out for his disciples the new path forward, the way that following him is going to change the world, basically what a life lived in devotion to Jesus would look like. And in there, in that whole teaching of new ways of viewing life and activity and the way you view your work and rest and life with God, he throws out that there's going to be a new way to pray. And so we, we've been kind of unpacking this. And so I'm just going to let you know how today's going to go. I'm going to give a little bit of a continuation of where we've been and going through this service. And then I've come up with an illustration that we've been working on together as a team that hopefully will be amazing and could potentially just be horrible and might not work at all. So you just have to imagine that it went perfectly, okay? It went pretty awesome in the first service. Before that, it didn't go so awesome. So, you know, we're rolling the dice this morning. Um, anyway, so just, just excited about today, excited about what God's going to do. Um, I want to pray. And then I want us to jump in, and I want us to pray because I've been asking myself this question. I've been asking myself over the last couple of weeks, sitting in the meetings, and with Brad and Dan and Clayton and the team and everybody trying to figure out how, you know, what, what, what we're going to do today and what we're going to talk about. And I've been asking myself this question, what should be the result of you guys listening to me talk for the next 27 minutes? Like, what should happen, right? You got up, you came to church, you got your family ready and dressed, and for some of you, you had to, you know, you went early and got some breakfast, or you had to go a little bit early and put gas in the car, or whatever, but somehow, some way, you ended up here. And so what should actually happen because we sit and open the Bible for the next 27 minutes and look at it? What should happen? Well, I think the result should be that we pray more. And not just that we pray more, not just that we, we show up and kind of just stumble through some, some like, prayer things that we think we've done before, but rather that we would be informed and encouraged to look at what Jesus taught on prayer and to engage with that. Because tomorrow morning, starting tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., we are going to be finishing up week three of our 21 days of prayer from 6 to 7 a.m. We're going to do it all week, just like we did it all week the last two weeks. And by the way, tomorrow's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and so we're going to be praying for racial reconciliation here in the South, partnering with, in, in a way to really honor uh, Dr. King by saying, you know, we're, we still want to pray for this. We still want to see this happen and be true in our state. So if you want to come out, please do come pray with us in the morning for that. So let me pray and we'll jump in and look at kind of where we've been and, and, and what Jesus' is teaching shows us about prayer today. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our church, for the stories of baptism that we've gotten to celebrate all across the state today, for the stories of conversion uh, where people are beginning to and are continuing to, just like we, they have been for thousands of years, to be exposed to the reality of God in Christ, the love of God that is just so unexplainable, that turns the hardest of hearts into soft, moldable works of art that you've made. So God, we just bless you. We offer today back to you. Would our heart and our cry and our prayer be that the kingdom of God would come, the will of God be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Okay, so here's where we are. The Sermon on the Mount, basically here's the movement. Jesus comes forward and he starts throwing all these teachings out. 
And to, a, um, to, to his crowd that he's teaching, the disciples that he's teaching this to, he's speaking to first century Jewish men, okay? So um, they, they would have actually known what prayer is a lot more so than even us. So I, I wrote this down. Actually, I just copied and pasted it, if I'm being honest. So just to give us an idea of what did first century Jewish prayer look like? Because if Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, hey, we're going to establish this new way of doing life, of relating to God, of devotion to him. And they go, okay, well, what then does prayer look like for you, Jesus, if we're going to establish this new way for this, you know, first century Jewish rabbi who's been heralded as the Messiah, the coming one, the one who all the prophecies spoke of. What then do you say about prayer? And how, when he answers, did it starkly change the mind of these first century Jewish fishermen and tax collectors and people that were around him? So here's, here's this idea. Their liturgy, the, the first century Jewish people, it consisted of three primary corpuses. Number one, it was the twice daily recitation of the Shema, which is the central statement of Jewish monotheistic belief. So imagine... Like if you grew up in a church where you learned about the creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, like basically these creedal one-line belief statements about what Christianity is, they have one called the Shema that's basically their, it's Judaism in a statement, right, for, for just a, a basic term. So daily prayer was we recite this Shema and the blessings that go on the front and the back end. So this is what they would have known about prayer. Second... They would have had a prayer of 18 different blessings, also known as the Amidah, which is recited several different times throughout the day. And number three, the, the public recitation of the Torah in installments. So the first little bit of the scripture just that they would recite in installments and over time. It was their calendar. It was the way that their school was run. It was the way that their meals and family and everything was around. So when Jesus is, when it should be no surprise to us that these first century Jewish men are now asking Jesus, okay, then what do you say about the way we should pray? Because they had an understanding of prayer. They had this, this very rigid, scheduled, big, often demonstrative approach toward prayer. And Jesus says, We're gonna, there's a new way. And so, what do you say about prayer? And it's interesting. If you read the, the, the chapter right before we get to this verse here, um, who does Jesus go after when they say, how should we pray? Well, he goes after the people that they knew. The religious, hypocritical people who... The prayer was big, and they would beat their chest, and they would. Man, their prayer was big and demonstrative. And Jesus would say, "Don't pray like them." Their reward for their prayer is that you saw them pray. Their reward for their prayer is that they think that they're doing the work of God by just these these loud hypocritical prayers. He says, "No, no, 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 no. Here's what you do: you go in your room, you lock the door, and you pray in secret. And God, who sees you in secret, will reward you in secret." So even before we get to the statements he makes that are that are like. Very stark and sobering statements to make. What Jesus says is, okay, what you understand of prayer to be this big, you know, this, this religious movement of recited things over and over. It's a new thing we're doing. Go to God in prayer. He sees you in secret. He will reward you in secret. So this in and of itself was like, what? And then he says, and when you pray, pray like this. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9. This is what we're looking at. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father. And everybody goes, whoa, 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 what? Jesus says, that's right. Now, here's the way that prayer is going to shape up for you. When you pray, you go in your room, you close the door, and you engage in a conversation with your Father in heaven. This is a totally new way. This is what Brad talked about in week one, where we together as a church are learning what does it look like to go to God in prayer and not to see him as this genie in a bottle sky boss who has to sign off on our like spiritual PO that we send him 
but rather that we see a father in heaven, a perfect father who loves us, protects us, disciplines us, has a plan for us, created us with purpose and intentionality. How that changes our prayer, it just does. It, it, it changes the way that we engage with God in communication if we understand he is my father, which is much harder for a lot of us to deal with. Why? Because so many of us have this just not complete, not perfect, not even great in a lot of circumstances idea of what a father is. And statistically, the best way for us to engage with God, according to how Jesus chose to tell us he wanted to be revealed to us, is to see and learn to relate to God as father. So if you had a bad dad, it's going to be hard for you. If you didn't have a dad, it's going to be really hard for you. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. That means that the discovery that we get to on the other side is so rich. And it makes this not a religious, I have to do this, but rather this deep, beckoning relationship that propels us forward. That no set of rules could come and get us into. No set of religious things you have to do could ever get yourself into this. It's, no, it's this, it's this wild relationship with God as Father. And if you know anything about a relationship, if you're older than four and you're in here, you know that relationships are wild sometimes. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's off, and it's, did you do something wrong? Did I do something wrong? I said blue and you heard green. Was that my fault or your fault? What's happening? Do you still love me, like me? Are we still around? And that's, this is what God wants, is this relationship with him as our father. So this is the first movement that Dan came to talk about. The second week, or that, that Brad talked about, and then Dan talked about in week two, how the, the portion of it goes, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And how God came to reveal himself to us in his name. There was a time when your name revealed way more than just what your parents thought you should be called. But it revealed your destiny, your purpose. It was attached to, the, to what you were to accomplish here on earth, your name. And so God is choosing to be known by us as, as not just father, but as our peace. Which is amazing in, in, in the year of the, the anxiety-ridden culture that we are in. That God has always wanted to be known as our peace. That he is our provider, that he is our, he's our righteousness. And all of these things that we went through in week two where we talk about, here's all the things that God is to us. So we are learning again as a church, what does it look like to pray to our Father in heaven who is my peace regardless of if I have any peace in my life? Who is my provider regardless of if I have millions in the bank or if I don't know how I'm going to eat this week? What does it look like to engage with God in prayer the way he chose to be revealed not the way I just feel about him on a Tuesday morning at 6.15. We're learning this. And then we move and we get to week three, which is the movements we're going to be talking about today. And these three movements are, in my opinion, some of the potentially easiest to just pass through or most life-changing understandings of what it means to engage with God in prayer. So the movements are this. The first movement is this. After you say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here's the first movement. Your kingdom come. So Jesus says, after you, when you go to pray with God, after you acknowledge that God is your Father in heaven, and he's all of these things, this is his character, this is his nature, this is who he is and what he promises to do, then your heart and your mind turn to asking for, begging for, partnering with God to work toward his kingdom coming. Which, if you just study history a little bit, you'll find this was a really fascinating time in human history for Jesus to bring up the idea of kingdom. Because at this point, um, Israel had been occupied by Rome for roughly 100 years. 
So when Jesus teaches that your prayer, our prayer is to move toward this idea of the kingdom of God coming, it doesn't matter which side of the coin theologically you look at, most everybody believes that his disciples would have understood this to be a political statement. Because when, when he said kingdom, they thought empire. They thought Rome, they thought authority, they thought big government, they thought powerful emperor Pompey, they thought invasion, they thought for a hundred years we've been captives in our own land, right? And we, we kind of go and, and you can kind of study empire and what it means to be occupied, but the reality is these people were in their land that in their mind was promised to them from God as a payment for the 400 years of slavery they had spent in Egypt. And now here they were, and someone from Rome was telling them, that represents a whole different empire, was telling them where their taxes should go, what should happen to the resources and the land that they felt God was promised to them. And so when Jesus says, okay, you pray for your kingdom to come, that the kingdom of God would come, they would have thought political. Because their understanding of a first century Jewish Messiah who came to fulfill the prophecies and promises of God was that he was going to come and liberate them from captivity of the Roman Empire. He was going to come and kick out Rome and bring them the glory of Israel back. And they were going to have their own kingdom again. It was going to be this big, demonstrative, powerful thing. Now remember, most of his disciples were like teenage young guys who kind of fished for a living and did other things. So, you know, we get jacked up about everything. You ever been in, you've ever come to High School Fuse and tell a group of high school dudes something awesome and watch them get excited about it, right? You go to the football games, you got their shirts off, it's eight degrees outside and they're painted chests, all this stuff, right? So Jesus says, pray your kingdom come. And they're like, yeah. Right? And, G and this is like a, a, a habit of Jesus' teaching with them. They just couldn't get that Jesus is coming to establish a totally different kingdom that's nothing like empire that they had ever seen. And you see this because the disciples, even their, their, one of the disciples' moms is like, hey, man, are they, they're gonna be on, who's going to be on your right and on your left? Like, yeah, yeah, we get it. Humble yourself and die to yourself and serve your neighbor and blah, 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 blah. But like, who can sit with you like when you get your thing? And Jesus is like, Oh my gosh, I probably should have picked smarter people to be a part of this first group. Like, we can do this, right? In Luke chapter 19, they're on their way to Jerusalem for the final conclusion, the, the, the big climax of Jesus' you know, unlawful arrest and then his trial and then his, his, his death, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. We're getting ready to see the full climax of it and they're on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus is talking about the kingdom. Look at this in Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things... Jesus is walking with his guys. They're headed toward Jerusalem, big capital city. They're going to march on D.C., right? They're going to do their thing. And Jesus is going to come in, and he's going to just take power back. He's going to, all these miracles they've seen, he's going to come in and like, just like zap Jerusalem, and he's going to be the king, right? He proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They thought Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to lay down the law. And Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to lay down his life. Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to be unjustly arrested for crimes he never committed. To a court system that, that try as it may, was, was corrupt. There was no due process. This was, not a, this was not the American idea, when it works correctly, of justice in any capacity. This was, okay, well, bring a thief down and let a thief and murderer and, and a bad guy get away and we'll hang Jesus on this cross. And we'll, okay, it was unjust, it was wrong in every way. And Jesus goes to establish a new kingdom. 
And he goes to teach about a kingdom where you win your enemies over by love and service, not revenge and lawsuits. He goes to teach this way of, 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 of relating with God and doing life with God in such a way uh, where forgiveness and justice and goodness and mercy are the normal way of life, not rage and anger and revenge. A, a, a way of establishing a kingdom with a king who willfully chose to die, not kill. This is a totally upside-down kingdom that, by the way, is just as hard for us to get our minds around as it was for his first-century Jewish followers. Because we all still want empire, right? We all still want big American powerhouse, military, you know, just like we, we, this is what we want. This is what we crave. It doesn't matter who your king in D.C. is. Like, pick your side of the coin. We all want our thing and our empire. And Jesus is like, that's not what I'm talking about. It's this upside-down kingdom. And this call in his teaching us what prayer looks like reminds us that when we engage with God in prayer, we're reminded, my call is to ask that the kingdom of God would come. That the rule and reign of God would take place and that I would spend my time, energy, and effort not building my kingdom, but rather to partner and see the kingdom of God here. We say this all the time, that prayer changes things. Me first. Like, some things won't change until you pray. When we say that, we're not talking about your income. We're talking about you. Some things won't change until you pray. We're not talking about the neighborhood you get to live in. We're talking about your heart. We're talking about the way you think, the way you view the world, the way you react and act socially, the way that your whole life engages. When I say some things aren't going to change until you pray, I mean the way you parent your kids. Anybody who's lived long enough will tell you, you can't white knuckle your way through life. You don't get it. You may get some different behaviors, but you don't get change. Why? Because Jesus said, you change when you come in and you pray that the kingdom of God would come and rule and reign you. The first movement is that the kingdom would come, that God's kingdom would come. The second movement that he gets to is now you pray for your will, that the will of God would be done. Now, the next few minutes are going to be Potentially dangerous, definitely offensive, and you may hate my guts. If you do, just email Brad Cooper at in New Spring. I'm kidding. Because I'm about to throw a handful of just opinions out there that may not represent the way New Spring Church feels or Brad feels or Clayton or anybody else. And if Clayton gets up next week and he's like, hey, Caleb was wrong about that, just listen to him. All I have is my experience and what I've learned and studied, etc. But here's what I think, okay? Hot take. When Jesus says pray that God's will would be done, I think he knew that a day would come when you could advertise a series on the will of God and everybody would show up. We'd, if we did a series starting next week on what is God's will, how to know God's will, these, every seat we have in every campus would be full. Because you all ask the question. Here's my hot take. I don't think we actually have a hard time knowing what the will of God is. There's too many promises in the Bible. That when you come to Christ, you repent of your sin, you receive salvation, you receive the promise and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I believe that you know how to perfectly hear from God. The Holy Spirit, who is your teacher, your God, your helper, I think he speaks to us all the time. You know what I think? I think we don't want to do what God says. Offensive. I'm going to go offensive here, okay? Just gird up your loins. This one's going to sting, potentially. You know what conversation we don't get to have as church leaders? You know what conversation we don't have? We never sit with the woman who actually thinks 
that bailing on her marriage and her family to engage with this Facebook relationship is a good idea. She doesn't sit there and go, you know what? I think this is really gonna be a good thing. I think this is what God wants. No, what's she think? I want this. She's engaging this whole, I'm not throwing shade at this woman, I'm saying that's what's happening. Nobody, we don't get to sit down with the guy who runs his business who gets to the end of the month and goes, I think God wants me to lie this month about how much money we took in. I think that the will of God is my dishonesty. Come on. Nobody has that conversation. Why? Because what's actually at play? He wants it. This was the battle in the garden. There was no uncertainty at all regarding what Adam and Eve's role was. Hello. Eat everything. Do literally whatever you want, except this teeny tiny thing. You think that was actually unclear? No, what's at stake? What's at play? That you and I were made in the image of God with the ability to decide what we do with our carnal desires. That's why Jesus says, here's the new way to pray. When you go to God in prayer, you've got something bigger to overcome. It's your own selfish will. My selfish will. So here's what this looks like for us. Here's practical what this looks like for us. When we go to God in prayer, we can no longer be the kind of people that sit with God in prayer long enough to know what the right thing to do is. Then we have to stay with God in prayer. And we have to sit with him until his heart and his character so shape us and change us that we want what he wants. This is why we're spending so much time as a church infused on Sundays and in Kids Spring trying to make sure that all of us have the right theology where we understand that God is good, that he is a father, his plans are perfect and right. Why? Because if we can understand that God as he chose to reveal himself, then we will sit with him long enough in prayer to let his heart change our heart so that we want what he wants. This is something religion can't accomplish. Religion can't it can set a great set of rules and standards that will provide for you a great set of guardrails to keep your life in check. But when that comes into play and you have that carnal, fleshy, greedy part of you that's going to come back to it, it's always going to be on you to determine what you're going to do with it. Why? Because God made you. He thought you were a good idea, and he wants you and him to engage in a relationship together to overcome your will so that his will would be done. Jesus' will was to do the will of my father, which kind of stunk because God's will was for him to die. He's our example. I sit with God in prayer. I wrestle in the garden, right? This is, this is all we talk about. I wrestle with God in prayer in the garden. I fight, I cry, I scream, I kick, I can shout, and I can get in prayer with God, and it can look like a, a baby just having a, a temper tantrum. I don't want to do this. I don't like these people. This job stinks. My wife is a jerk. I don't want to do it. It's fine. Go do all you got to do with that. But then be quiet and let the heart of God change you so that you can be moved by his will. Third movement is this. is the final movement. Jesus said, your kingdom come in prayer. God's will be done in prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we have to correct some theology here. Because a lot of people that I have spoken with here in the South, myself included until a few years ago when I started to look into this, we have a, an incorrect understanding of heaven. So let me help you. And I'm basically when I say help, I mean I'm going to basically throw a grenade into your, this is not going to suffice for like a good teaching about heaven. So you need to go, go do some research here. But basically what we think about heaven is that there's this paradise 
that if I did enough good things, as soon as I die, I get to go and do what I want forever. And God's in there somewhere. And unfortunately, this is a pagan understanding of paradise in the afterlife. Most religions have some sort of understanding and some sort of belief system that says when you die, you get to go do what you want forever, okay? So I'm sorry to hurt your feelings, but that's not even close to what Jesus taught about heaven and the afterlife. That's not it at all. What Jesus' understanding of heaven was, when he says that the kingdom of God would come here on earth as it is in heaven, his understanding of heaven is that here's the earth and all of its physicalness, okay? And their overlaying earth is this spiritual realm, this dimension where God is right now ruling and reigning perfectly. Where the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God is operating at full clip right now. Where the will of God is being executed perfectly right now. And there will come a day when the ascended Jesus Christ will descend and come back to earth. And he will bring with him a new Jerusalem, a new heaven. The earth will be renewed. And eternity for us will be lived on earth in a renewed state with God forever. Where we will have God with us in a very real, tangible way. This is the garden, Genesis 1, where you have man's responsibility to form and subdue the earth. And you have God there with him in the garden. Man rejected God's authority, rejected life with God. And then you see in Revelation 21 where it's back restored, God and man together again. So what Jesus is trying to get at is that there is a space right this second where everything is working perfectly. And our job is to pray with God to see that heaven come to earth. So here's the illustration. And this may botch totally. So if it doesn't, then just imagine what I'm going for in your mind and just like assume it worked perfect, okay? Because I have, thank you, Danny. Danny's encouraging me back here. But this is what happens when I pick up a drill. If you ask my wife, most things in our house go worse when I get a drill. So here's what it looks like. You have a husband and wife that sit down and they're praying through what they want their family situation to look like. And for whatever reason they remember, Jesus taught that the most vulnerable in a society, that the least and the lost, that the orphans were the ones who matter most. So you know what? I don't know where we're gonna get the money. And I don't know how hard this is gonna be, but you know what? I think we should adopt. I think we should go, I think we should go do something really hard that's gonna be pretty much hard for our entire lives. And I think we should go adopt. And what happens is that when they bring this kid home that doesn't look like them, and doesn't have the same family background as him, that otherwise had absolutely a, a, a pretty slim chance in life, this kid ends up with a beautiful hope and a future. And what happens? The people in their family go, oh gosh. And it gives testimony to the reality of God and the reality of heaven right now. And it breaks forth into the earth. Here's another example. You have a husband who gets off work from a long week and he goes to the bar and he has a few too many drinks. And while he's there, he, he, he decides he's gonna text a, an old girlfriend. And immediately he feels wrong about it. He knows it's bad, he knows it's wrong. So he goes home and he says, I'm, uh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. I, I had a few too many drinks and this was, this was wrong and I'm sorry. And the wife who's just rightly so just filled with rage and has every, you know, every right in the world to just rage out on him and just wanna punch him in the face remembers what Jesus taught on forgiveness. It says that I should forgive 70 times seven. And she goes, regardless of how mad I am at you, 
We're gonna go to some counseling and we're gonna sit down and we're gonna work this out. And so what happens is in that moment, the kingdom of God breaks through and her kids don't have to hope they show up in church where somebody teaches them about heaven because they see it in mom. This is the way it's supposed to work for us, church, where it doesn't have to be a guy on a stage with a microphone or a big light and song and sound. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You are to partner with me in bringing heaven to earth in your home right now. So here's another circumstance. Here's how it happens. You have a home group that gets together and does a Bible study. And they're together for years and have a great relationship. And then all of a sudden, one day, one of the guys in the home group gets sick. So he goes into the doctor and he finds out he has cancer. And now it doesn't matter so much what Bibles, you know, what, what book of the Bible you go through or what questions you ask while you're there. You kind of just sit, you cry together, you pray, you figure out what the heck you're going to do. And then, then everybody in the group lays their hands on the person with cancer. There's no magic. There's no, there's no dramatic effect. There's no beautiful keyboards that come in. There's, there's none of that. It's just regular men and women working to believe and engage with God in prayer. And they lay hands on him and they pray. And then he goes back to the doctor and I got to do a little bit of work here. I botched this earlier too. Sorry, man. He goes back to the doctor and the doctor says, I paid a lot of money. Well, let's be honest. I borrowed a lot of money for this degree. And I could tell you pretty much everything you need to know about cancer um, I can't tell Caleb how to do this illustration right because he just doesn't know how to use tools because he's a goober. Will, can you come help me? This is, this is, it's like, babe. Who will get this? We got it. Come on. You guys need to pray harder for me. Come on. Sometimes prayer is messy, man. It's hard. You know, it doesn't work the way that you intended it to, just like this. Boom. All right. So what happens is it goes back. Yeah, you clap for that. Thank you. That's like a, my child could do that. So he comes, he, he goes to the doctor. The doctor's like, man, I don't know what to tell you, but you don't have cancer anymore. And it's just crazy because I've seen this. And what happens is now he goes back and he doesn't have to explain to somebody his great theology. He just says, man, I was sick and now I'm not. What's happening? Well, what's happening is the light has been there the whole time. We just had to get out of the way. This is what Jesus is saying. You don't have to produce delight. You don't have to work to build this crazy religious life with God where you do everything perfect and when you make a mistake, you have to beat yourself and pay your penance and you have to come. No, it's not what he's saying at all. So how about, how about the situation where you have a prodigal, right? You have a kid who you did everything that you possibly knew how to do as a parent and you held to the promise that you know, if you train up a child and the way they should go, you could finish it for me. Then even when they're, you know, when they get older, they won't depart from it. And you hold to that promise. You're like, man, if I just do what I'm supposed to do, eventually they'll get it. And then they go off to college and they go crazy. And then they graduate and they go to a city where they just continue to go crazy. And they're just like, and you just begin to lose hope and lose your confidence in God because you're just like, man, they're just never going to come back. And then something happens, right? Something happens where they'll go to church somewhere or one of their friends, will, something will happen to them and they come into the conviction of the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden they just, they repent of their sin, they trust Christ for salvation and over a, you know, an almost impossible period of time, 
They just, their, their life is totally transformed in a way that only heaven could produce. What's happening? What's happening is the light is breaking through. What's happening is our lives, not just our words, are giving witness to the reality of God and the reality of heaven. So what happens when a church of 20,000 people decides, I'm gonna partner with God in praying like Jesus said and seeing the kingdom of God come, the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like I can tell you what happens. People at your job stop living in the dark. They start to see the light. People that are in school with your kids, they stop living in darkness. They start to see light and all of a sudden, Everything that we talk about bears witness to their soul. Because we didn't just pray to God like some sky boss out there somewhere that I hope hears me somewhere. No, we did what Jesus said and we spoke to our Father in heaven. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done. Get me out of the way. Get my will out of the way. Get my fleshy never satisfied greed that just can't get enough. Get that out of the way so we can see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all of a sudden, everything gets brighter. Come on, what would it look like? What could change about your marriage that just hasn't worked in 20 years if we chose to pray like Jesus? What needs to change about your office, about the water cooler, about the walking group that you do on Thursday nights? What needs to change? What could change? Come on, let's don't just think about it religiously, like what am I doing wrong and how do I fix it? No, let's turn our eyes toward hope. What could happen? You're 22 years old, you have no idea what you're gonna do with your life. Well, what could happen over the next 40 years? As you begin to understand that I was created by God, my Father, I have the image of the invisible God stamped on my soul, created to put good into my world. And everywhere I go and every job I'm in and every relationship I enter, I'm there to do the will of God. What could change, man? South Carolina is way too small for us to think about changing. We stand to your feet. I want to pray for us. And then we're going to sing. We're going to respond. We're going to pray. And I want to see as many people as possible at church tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. so we can together pray for each other and encourage one another the kingdom of God would come, that the will of God would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So will you bow your head and close your eyes? <coughs> I just want to pray for a group of people before I, before I walk off stage and every campus goes live to transition. If you're here this morning and you know, you just know that you have been called by God to make progress in your prayer life and you just, you don't know what, you don't know why you can't. You feel paralyzed or you don't know what to pray or for whatever reason. And today, you just want to, you want to make some progress in your prayer life. Will you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Amen. Amen. Come on. Yes. Amen. Good. Me too. Good. Amen. God, I just pray for every hand that's raised. You see their hearts. You know their life. You know the purity of their desire, which is to pray fervently, successfully. We want to pray, God, in a way that brings glory to you and brings goodness to our world that changes our environment. But God, mostly we want to pray in a way that changes us. We want to be known as people not who just get on the internet and blast our opinions, but rather those who would get on our face and we would petition the king of heaven to make our, our earth, our place of earth, the same way that it is where you are. God, I pray that you would begin to to quicken their hearts and their spirits, to hear your voice, to pray according to your will, to know where they're called to press in. God, I pray that as a church, we would become people who pray. 
that we would pray first, that we would pray the loudest, that we would pray the hardest, that we would become people who would not be satisfied doing things according to what we can imagine and see, but rather we would trust you and build according to your will. God, I just bless everybody here as we move forward in trying to pray. Let our efforts be a blessing to you, God, in Jesus' name.